Good afternoon. Today is Friday, the 10th of November, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish. Delighted to be here with Mike Robinson and our guest today, Vanessa Beely, joining us from Damascus and also Ben Rubin. Uh, we're going to get started with yeah. the, uh, the clash. The, yes, continuing for uh, with Sola Braverman. So here she is uh, in the Times. Uh, police must be even handed with protests. There's a perception that senior senior officers play favourites when it comes to protesters. This was in the Times uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, the uh, furor has been continuing ever since. Uh, in this country, we pride ourselves on our long-established traditions of freedom of expression. These liberties consist not only in freedom of speech, but also in freedom, freedom of assembly. As she goes on to justify uh, the UK government's intervention with the police in order to prevent freedom of speech and freedom of assembly uh, with respect to a certain... Uh, type of protest uh, that we all know about, which is the Palestinian uh, pr protests that are going on uh, each Saturday at the moment. Now, of course, this is all about the fact that tomorrow is uh, Armistice Day, uh, and uh, therefore this is being ramped up to be uh, create some kind of conflict between uh, Palestinian peace protesters and everybody else. And just to give uh, another example of the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing in some sections of uh, the media at the moment, uh, this was uh, Nigel Farage's programme, uh, and uh, we are looking at Stephen Barrett here, the barrister. Hey, what we have seen is successive weekly protests in London getting more and more violent. The one last Saturday involved direct assault of people in military uniform. Now, that is simply a lie. Uh, now, we were there, as we said on Monday's programme, we were at the protest last Saturday. Uh, and uh, in fact, we saw uh, the uh, military in uniform outside the Admiralty Bar uh, at Trafalgar Square. Uh, these were submariners who had been commemorating uh, their own commemoration for war dead. Uh, and uh, well, I'm just going to show, if we just put this on screen, this is a tweet that went out. Uh, claiming as two young British servicemen walk through Trafalgar Square, they were on the receiving end of some abusive language, with the man on the right in the frame making a spitting motion towards them. Out of frame, he reached for my phone as I walked past. Uh, so let's just have a look at uh, a short little piece of video here, which uh, was embedded in this tweet. Now, Brian, perhaps you can help me out here because I'm struggling to hear the abusive language and I certainly didn't see, okay, there was a spitting motion, but uh, there was no uh, sign of abuse there or, or uh, assault. Uh, and, I mean, frankly, were these guys running through the, the raging mob uh, or were, were they walking calmly, chatting as, as people... Uh, watch them watch, uh, walk past. Uh, I mean, I just think the, the characterization of this is appalling. Uh, well, they were walking very calmly, Mike, but of course, uh, when we were at the event, you saw my astonishment when I saw military personnel in uniform so close to this protest. And I was astonished at how relaxed they were sitting outside the, or stand, sitting and standing outside the pub. Um, enjoying a pint within feet of what was supposed to be a violent uh, uh, protest. Um, so I, I showed astonishment. And then later in the day, 
day as the light faded, uh, we watched um, these men in uniform, or some of them at least, walk through the edge of the crowd in order to go wherever they were going. And they did so quite freely and happily. My mind went back to the, to the late 70s, early 80s, uh, when uh, servicemen could be uh, attacked or beaten up in nightclubs simply because they had short hair and could be identified as servicemen. So um, this, is, this is propaganda. It's trying to inflame the situation. My other comment is that if our military are now so precious, they can't take a little bit of pushback from the public, then we need to think again. But if we go back to that period, uh, late 70s, uh, early 1980s, often a lot of trouble simply with servicemen going into local pubs or discos to enjoy themselves. And if the numbers were in favor of the local population, uh, quite often those uh, military guys could be assaulted by members of the normal British public. So this is complete nonsense in my book. Uh, absolutely. So let's look at some more propaganda here. Uh, this is uh, Mail Online, where your poppy with pride MP MPs say people are too nervous to wear the symbol of remembrance over fears of a backlash. As nation rallies around Royal British Legion, volunteers are too terrified to raise cash amid, ten amid tensions with pro-Palestine protesters. This is all designed to ramp up uh, a narrative of anger uh, uh, with a view to getting people out on the streets tomorrow. Um, so just let's remember that the government has made a very serious effort to interfere with uh, police operations. Uh, this is, We had, had this on Monday's programme. Uh, this is uh, Rishi Sunak's letter uh, to the Chief Constable of Metropolitan Police, uh, basically attempting to interfere while still trying to maintain that uh, decisions are rightly operationally independent from politicians. Um, so th this is the, the narrative that we've we got to consider what the implications are of uh, the British government attempting to, to uh, force operational decisions on the police. Uh, and let's just put this in the context of the kind of legislation that we've seen in the last couple of years. The shutdown of free, free speech through the Online Safety Act, the National Security Act, the media bill, which is coming in the next parliament, uh, the criminalization of protests through the Police Crime Court Sentencing Act and the Public Order Act, uh, the uh, effect on free elections and the Elections Act, uh, the unaccountability in law uh, through the Judicial Review and Courts Act, the Human Covert Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act, uh, our rights removed. Well, that's be, the, the Bill of Rights bill has been withdrawn now in July this year, so they, they're not going to continue with that. Uh, and the fact that they can now strip citizenship through the Nationality and Borders Act. So we have this situation. We've got to take these things in the round, not look at any single piece of legislation, but let's just remind ourselves what was in the King's speech, the Criminal Justice Bill. This is going to allow the police to enter your property without a warrant under certain circumstances. That's a slippery slope to begin uh, heading down. The Investigatory Powers Amendment Bill, uh, this is, uh, uh, again, an expansion of investigatory powers and, and surveillance in the state, uh, just running through a couple of these others that are less important in this context. Uh, and the media bill we've already mentioned. So we are in a pretty serious situation here. And if the government attempts to take control of uh, uh, police operational decisions, this is uh, really a dictatorship. But finally, I just want to let everybody know that Charles Mallet, former military, former policeman, has published an article on the UK Column website uh, entitled Israel-Hamas Conflict. Uh, some Home Secretary picks a side for the police. 
And the key point about this is uh, to, to consider what it actually means operationally for the police uh, if uh, the government interferes in this way. Uh, but Brian, what about the uh, uh, poppy remembrance issue itself? Well, I just wanted to make a little bit of quick comment here, if we could pop this uh, image up on screen, because uh, I want to say to the audience as an ex-serviceman and a person who has lost family members uh, in times gone by in the, in the First World War and the Second World War, uh, I am appalled at people attempting to use war dead as a political lever. Um, so I remember the dead. I have poppies growing in my garden. This is a picture of them here in the breeze. And uh, I just want to say to people, I think it's completely wrong that British war dead are being used as a political weapon, principally by the politicians, in order to carry out their agenda and allow further wars overseas. So that's my personal position. Uh, Vanessa, let's welcome you to the programme with a bit more on Suella Braverman. Yeah, uh, I mean, starting obviously with where you left off, Mike, the waving a Palestinian flag, not a Hamas flag, a Palestinian flag may be a criminal offence, Braverman tells the police. But who is Suella Braverman and with who or what does her allegiance lie? Does it lie with the UK or Israel? This is a fairly detailed article that I just uh, published up at my Substack. If people want to go and have a look at it, there's a, a plethora of links and information. I obviously can't cover it all, but I'm going to cover the basic facts. So, um, Suela Fernandez, as she was when she was a simple MP, in 2015, she visited Israel with the Conservative Friends of Israel. So it was a funded trip by the Conservative Friends of Israel. Probably around 70% of Conservatives are Friends of Israel and a similar number within the Labour Party itself. And people might remember Priti Patel, who was also obviously Home Secretary later. But in 2017, she went on an all-expenses-paid holiday uh, to Israel, where the scandal was that basically she met secretly with high-level businessmen, military, political um, individuals within Israel itself, and it was then discovered that she had been uh, basically securing uh, money for charities, which were then siphoning the money to the Israeli uh, occupation forces. In 2018, I, I just want people to bear that story in mind as I continue uh, with Braverman. In 2018, Braverman married Rael uh, Braverman. Uh, at an um, interview which she gave to the Jewish Chronicle, probably the most prominent uh, Jewish uh, media outlet in the UK, if you can move on, Mike. Um, in March 2023, police must understand that Jews do count, says Braverman, in an interview with JC. Now, in that interview herself, she spoke about her marriage uh, to Ryle. My husband is a proud Jew and Zionist. He's lived in Israel. We have close family members who serve in the IDF. And at the end of that section that I've taken out, clearly the issue is personal. Quite how personal, we will find out. If we look at the photo of her giving the interview at the CSC uh, headquarters, um, and in the background you can see there, CSC, um, God, I've just forgotten what it stands for. Um, 
protecting uh, the Jewish community. And you will see that she's wearing the Israeli uh, flag next to the British flag in a pin on her um, top. Moving on, I want to look at uh, CST itself. Now, under uh, Pretty Partel, they were given uh, 14 million to help keep members of the Jewish community safe. Remember that Pretty Partel was accused of siphoning money that was given to charities to the Israeli uh, occupation forces. Then let's have a look. The Home Office has been supporting the Community Security Trust. There you go. A charity that monitors and helps protect British Jews against anti-Semitism since 2015, following a series of terror attacks against Jewish targets across Europe. Um, now, uh, the fact is that the Charity Commission has also been responsible for uh, basically protecting the CST from any serious scrutiny, as reported in a number of uh, articles about the organization. And on the 12th of October 2023, Braverman gave an extra 3 million of funding to the CST. Again, remember what Priti Patel was accused of and think about the timing of when this extra 3 million was given to the CST. I'm not making any accusations. I'm simply saying think about it. Then if we come to the case of uh, Professor David Miller, who was effectively sacked by Bristol University, even though he was effectively cleared of charges of anti-Semitism, as a leaked document showed, published in the Electronic Intifada, and then taken from my article in the next slide, um, the lawyer that was hired by Bristol University to investigate the case against David Miller said that his conduct cannot reasonably be categorized as misconduct. And the document shows that the complaint which resulted in Miller's firing was instigated by two pro-Israel lobby groups and only later adopted by two pro-Israel students on campus. The two students acted in collusion with the CST which has links to Israel's deadly spy agency, Mossad, and the Union of Jewish Students, which is funded by and acts as a front for the Israeli embassy in London. I've put links to further reading on the CST in my article. And I wanted to just play um, the video that's up at the Support David Miller website because he's still appealing against the decision by Bristol University to sack him. I recommend everybody go to his website, and uh, I think there is now a petition that they can sign or offer him some support in his campaign. It's important for all pro-Palestinian activists and um, supporters. So I just want to show, it's a section of the video, but it's called Israel Gravy Train, and it gives a very good insight into how both Labour and Conservative parties are influenced by uh, the Friends of the uh, the Labour Friends of Israel, sorry, and the Conservative Friends of Israel. So if you want to play.
So very interesting. I would recommend that people go to David's website and actually um, read what he's written there also. Um, next, what I want to look at, uh, Mike, is not only are our politicians demonstrating that their allegiance lies not with the national security of the UK, but effectively with the national security of Israel, in my opinion, and not even of Israeli civilians, by the way. Um, so let's have a look at uh, Julia Hartley Brewer interviewing former Labour MP Chris Williamson. And I just want people to focus more on Julia Hartley Brewer than on Chris's answers. In Keir Starmer and the, the, the Prime Minister of the Conservative government as well, is that actually a ceasefire only benefits Hamas, who can rearm, uh, reorganise themselves, and then can continue uh, their uh, attacks on the Israeli uh, civilian people. Do you think that actually a ceasefire will in any way benefit the ordinary people of Gaza, ordinary civilians, including children? Well, they're being massacred on a daily basis, Julia, at the moment. So, of course, a ceasefire would be beneficial to the people living in Gaza, which is, let's remember, which is, let's remember, is a concentration camp. It's not it's, a concentration it's, it's, camp. Well, I'm sorry, How Julia. How dare you use that phrase? How prison. dare you? It, well, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, are Palestinians, are Palestinians working gas chambers in Gaza? Julia, what is the definition of a concentration camp? I, I'm just so People appalled. are penned in. They you are not seem like a normal person. Nobody is allowed you seem to go like a normal person with normal values. They have a fence around them. And they are oppressed. Say... They, are daily, they are regularly bombarded by the Israeli regime. It, what an absolute outrage. And how you can defend a regime which is behaving... Worse than Nazis, actually, in some Worse respect. Worse than Nazis. There we go. Yes, Worse absolutely. Because the... what we are seeing, Chris, thousands of children are being murdered by this Chris, Israeli why regime. Don't we, why don't we just Over save time? Why don't you just come on this when, show when and just shout, I hate Jewish people, and save no, everyone time? Well, what do you say about the Jewish people then that have joined the rallies in some marches in support of a ceasefire in support of the Palestinian people. What do you say about them, Julia? Plenty of about Arab... The, uh, no, no if, you're Pal if you're not an Israeli national, and there are plenty of Arab Israelis who are, you do have a vote in Israel. Well, I, I'm sorry, Julia, you need to actually look that there are tens of thousands, if not millions, of uh, Palestinians living in the area outside of, the, uh, uh, outside of uh, Gaza who do not have a vote. And indeed, it's an absolutely apartheid regime. There's no doubt about that. It's an apartheid that. regime. I mean, it's, it's not an apartheid regime. I mean, for goodness sake, in what way? Is, Israel is not an apartheid regime. And there is Israel, nothing you can... I hold mean, on a minute. Just a bit Salem, which is... I mean, it's, it's, that isn't... I don't even know how to describe what that is, but it definitely isn't journalism. And then, as you pointed out to me, Mike, she later put out a tweet saying that she's still shaking with anger at this. Uh, this is, if we're talking of the allegiance of members of the government or of the shadow cabinet to Israel, then clearly here we have journalists that have the same allegiance. And I just quickly wanted to point out the Infosys that um, I believe Ben spoke about last week. Uh, in 2020, they appointed Yuri Levine as an independent director. So for three years, he had direct influence on their various surveillance um, projects, which of course will be used against civilians in the UK in the future. Um, and guess what? He comes from um, basically military service in Unit 8200, 
Israel's shadowy cyber spy agency that is expert in spying on Palestinian civilians, both in the occupied territories and in Gaza and beyond in the region. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, and as uh, Brian has been pointing out uh, for quite some time now, mm. of course, deeply embedded in the UK intelligence agencies and uh, academia, in fact, in the UK as well. Uh, thank you for that, Vanessa. Now, Ben, let's uh, welcome you to the programme uh, and let's talk about democracy. Absolutely. So truth, justice, the global order, democracy itself are under threat. We're being told the question is where from and what to do about it. Let's hear, first of all, from Rory Stewart. Who do you think is accountable for having truth in the next year and in the run-up to the election? Well, it's, it's very, very depressing. And I think what one of the sad realities is that, um, you know, we feel an immense obligation to be optimistic, but, of course, I'm not a member of Parliament anymore. Um, and you can see this with President Obama. I mean, that's one of the saddest things, is that I feel that he seems to have almost given up. It's very difficult to work out what his political project is or how he's re-engaging. And this is partly about the media landscape. You know, that very speech that, you know, chilled me that Suella Bravman was making, you know, her bet that she can win an election by turning the Conservative Party into the kind of populist party we have in Europe, of course, was the entire front page of the Daily Mail, you know, congratulating her on whatever the phrase was, you know, a wig lifting, barnstorming, the greatest speech we've ever heard in conference. Right? Um, and AI is going to make it much, much worse. You know, whatever problems of polarization, whatever amplification of human the worst bits of human nature have been produced by Twitter and Facebook. It is as nothing compared to the way that bad actors will be amplified by AI before the next election. Now, this will be even more true in the United States, where a billion dollars is going to be spent on this and where Trump is really going to go for this. Right? That US election will be determined by AI. But it will be true in all the elections around Europe very, very quickly within a few months. People who don't think this are not spending enough time with the advanced models of AI. Um, so what's the answer? Well, we need algorithms in social media, Twitter and Facebook, that actually do not reward extremism. We reward people attempting to make more interesting arguments than center ground. Uh, we need newspapers who do not behave in this kind of reckless fashion. And we need AI to be very, very thoughtfully regulated almost immediately. So what's threatening democracy, uh, populism, polarization, artificial intelligence, which is only going to make things worse. Uh, Stuart thinks that the US election and many around Europe, including ours here in the UK, will be determined by AI. So I think it was a very interesting turn of phrase. Is that a warning or is that a threat from Mr. Stuart? What does he know about the plans for using AI to algorithmically interfere with our public debate? Uh, his view is that tech companies should be doing that. They should be suppressing extremist viewpoints, as he sees it, and amplifying people who are making more interesting arguments from the centre ground, maybe the non-partisan centre ground occupied by people like Rory Stewart, for example. 
Uh, he also thinks that AI needs to be regulated. We've heard a lot about that over the past few weeks. And all of this poses a very real and fundamental threat to something called democracy. So democracy. And, and actually, Stuart also mentioned uh, Obama, interestingly, and how saddened he was and how difficult it is to work out what Obama's political project is currently. What is Obama trying to achieve? And last week, Obama hosted his second annual democracy forum. And I sat through all six hours of this, so you don't have to. And in all honesty, it felt like a huge damage limitation exercise. They seem to be losing control of the narrative. The first thing to say is that Obama, like Tony Blair, does a fantastic job of making people forget the things that he's done in his recent past. He, after all, invaded seven countries while he was president. He is one of the primary reasons for so much of the chaos that we see unfolding in front of us on a daily basis. But obviously, he didn't get into that at his democracy forum. I did pick up a few things, though. First of all, the involvement of the MacArthur Foundation, a philanthropic fund, in driving $500 million into local media in the US. You have a collapsing traditional media ecosystem across the whole of the United States. In fact, that's a global issue. Newspapers are dying, have been dying for quite some time. In the space that's been created, organizations like the MacArthur Foundation are sweeping in to inject money, to inject ideas into that ecosystem. And what we're seeing is a fascinating and really counterintuitive tie-up between hard left-wing community organizers, which is where Obama started his political career, and wealthy philanthropists who are obviously just doing this to help out and for the betterment of the United States and the human race. Um, what else do we find out? Uh, the News Literacy Project, uh, another fascinating organization given main stage at the Obama Foundation Democracy Forum. Uh, the News Literacy Project has been around for about 15 years now. They're, they're celebrating their 15th birthday. They exist to give young people in particular the power to stop misinformation. And I'll let one of their executives talk a bit more about that now. We are a nonpartisan education nonprofit that works with educators and the broader public to help people distinguish credible information from misinformation to be better informed, more engaged, and more empowered individuals. You can learn more about NLP on our homepage at newslit.org. Do you hear that? NLP, neurolinguistic programming. News Literacy Project, do we think that that is a mistake? I, I don't think that it is. I think that that is a signal uh, from Obama on the main stage of his event saying, if you know what NLP means, you need to go and listen to what these people are saying. Um, if, if you want to find out more about how that is used in central government, uh, we can refer you to the Cabinet Office Mindspace uh, mind document, which has been spoken about at great length on the column before. Uh, this essentially is the uh, blueprint for the UK government nudge unit. It's about using neuro-linguistic programming to direct the population, citizens, into certain behaviours, certain beliefs, 
and in my view, fundamentally undermining uh, society and the democratic process, the democratic process which Obama and his colleagues are supposedly up there defending. Uh, what else do they talk about? Uh, NLP. So they're, they're very big on standards-based news from credible sources. They're there to protect the institutions. They want sources that demonstrate a commitment to transparency, accuracy, independence, being fair, presenting facts in the right context. It sounds so reasonable, sounds so, uh, uh, so, 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 um, so well, well-meaning. Uh, they have some advice for dealing for young people to deal with that one crazy uncle and his conspiracy theories. It's called PEP. You have to have patience, empathy, persistence. It's going to take time. You've got to respect their beliefs, but don't give up. Right. This is incredibly patronizing stuff when you understand who it's being communicated from. Uh, they did some polling in the room, which was really fascinating. Actually, they asked uh, the people there uh, uh, at the event, which headline um, talking about the same story demonstrates a concern for fairness and accuracy. Uh, the results were really interesting, actually. So there appears to be some dissent in the ranks, given the audience were all hand-picked and largely former Obama staffers. There were still 17% of them that went with the less favorable headline and actually, when the, the news titles were revealed, uh, the, the uh, standards-based credible news source, the New York Times, obviously had the, the less critical headline, merely said that the Supreme Court lifts limits for now on the Biden officials' contacts with tech platforms, just simple contacts with the tech platforms, nothing to do with suppressing social media content, as stated by Natural News, and directly violating the First Amendment. Um, what kind of contact do these tech platforms have with the government? What is it that the government is doing to interfere with them and to manipulate the narrative? Uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy last night uh, at the Republican presidential debate spoke about the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that was pushed on this network, talking about NBC for years. Was that real or was that Hillary Clinton made up disinformation? He was directing that towards Kristen Walker from NBC, who was moderating the debate in Miami last night. And uh, Mr. Ramaswamy posing there a fundamental challenge to the standards-based news from credible sources that Obama and NLP have been promoting. And in fact, that uh, narrative, the Russia collusion narrative, was based on the Steele dossier, which was signed off ultimately by Barack Hussein Obama while he was still president in, in, in 2016. More democracy. So also the World Forum for Democracy took place last week in Strasbourg. Uh, lots of democracy going on right now. Uh, it describes itself as a platform for political decision makers and activists to discuss the future of global democracy particularly looking at experimental initiatives and practices that will contribute to the evolution of democracy. Uh, I found out about it on LinkedIn because it was attended by some representatives from this organization, the Democracy and Culture Foundation, which is another nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who leads their website with this remarkable image. I have a voice, so why cover your mouth with a mask like that? Very strange. 
Um, they've been engaging in a debate, as I said, about the future of democracy. Uh, most democracies have uh, separate branches, three distinct branches of power, the executive, the legislative and the ju judicial branches. And the discussion at the World Forum for Democracy has been about expanding that. They've been examining a proposal to establish a fourth body of government composed of ordinary citizens, possibly chosen by sortition, which is something we've spoken about here previously. And I'm starting to see uh, rear its head a lot more often uh, in, in these conversations about the future of our system. So just, just to give us some insight into what that actually looks like, I've got a short film coming up from Arto Leary, Chief Executive of the Electoral Commission of Ireland, speaking a little bit earlier this year. There is something going on in the world right now. There is a hunger across the globe in political systems to get citizens involved in decision-making and policy development. And citizens want to be involved in this role as well. I'm going to tell you a story about Ireland and its experience with citizens' assemblies. The level of inclusion and support to people to give their, their opinions and their values and to share that and for it to be considered and not shot down has been absolutely amazing. The hundred people that you have in the room have to be representative of your society, all of it. With the diversity, I've met so many people that I would never have come into my zone before, you know, unless it was in this environment and it's really fantastic. Everyone in our country can look into that room and say, I'm there, I'm represented there, that's me. It's a hundred real people and I really do believe we've represented our country and our future and our future generations really well. We expose them to enough information and perspectives that they develop an expertise in the subject. The information you've given me has changed how I see things and how I go about my day. So it's really, really thankful for that. And at the end of that process, then we ask them the question, what will we do about the issue of women's health. So the citizens recommended an abortion regime and the government, they said, oh, let's see. So the citizens in the room, they voted 67 to 33 for this women's health regime. I found that we were able to say things that perhaps civil servants couldn't say. When the question was put to the people of Ireland in a referendum, the result was 66 to 34 which proves two things. One is that room was perfectly representative of the Irish people. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, the Irish people were much more advanced in their thinking on this particular subject than the politicians were. So it's a great advert there for sortition, for this new form of democracy. Um, but unfortunately, I'm, I'm a bit more cynical about it. A um, couple of reasons for that. I don't think it's possible to make 100 people experts, as we've just been told, in any given topic in a forum like that. Uh, and actually, this approach appears to be wide open to, to abuse and manipulation. In fact, uh, Mike, we've spoken a bit previously about um, how this was being used at the Occupy protest at St. Paul's a few years ago. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. And I mean, uh, the key point there that he said, they were given just enough information to make them experts, right? And what we saw at the uh, at the Occupy uh, events at, at St. Paul's was the use of uh, Delphi technique in order to 
basically get the outcome of the conversation that was desired. Uh, and if anybody doesn't know what the Delphi technique is, you should look it up. It's but, it's absolutely a key mechanism in these types of uh, so-called uh, participatory democracy. We just say using facilitators to control the whole environment in which the participants uh, give their views. And the lady crying, as she said, you've changed my whole world, shows the power of the psychology being used on these people. It had brought her to tears. That's how powerful it was. Uh, yes, Ben, yeah. got one final th thing here, Democracy Next. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so that film was from Democracy Next. Um, you know, I think this is, the, you know, what they're doing is is really interesting. They are going to uh, appear much more. They are they are becoming much more active uh, right now. Um, they were at the AI conference. The, they were speaking at the AI conference that I attended in London last week. The AI Fringe, as well as the Sortition Foundation. So this is something that's being promoted. Um, and uh, it's also worth noting that they are exceptionally well backed by organizations like the Open Society Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, One Project and others. And um, their ideological positions are uh, predictably aligned to those organizations and the people behind them. Okay, thank you. Uh, and there's that uh, number one again that we were talking about on Wednesday. Um, okay, if you like what the UK Column is doing, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership, much needed, much appreciated. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, maybe pick something up for a Christmas gift for some, somebody else. Uh, and uh, but please do share material on the uh, platforms, ukcolumn.org, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk uh, in particular. Um, now, I want to uh, mention again the first annual David Ray Griffin lecture. Uh, we're going to be discussing with uh, Daniele Ganser the uh, uh, Ruthless Empire post 9-11, everything that's happened since 9-11 uh, uh, and the justification around those events. Uh, so that's on Sunday the 3rd of December uh, this year at uh, 6 p.m. UK time, 7 p.m. Central European time. Uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, do get along to see that uh, if you can. Okay. Well, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to our audience who watched my interview with Sam, the lady who'd been trafficked and then having reached sanctuary in UK had her children stolen. It was just wonderful to see the very kind and heartfelt comments that uh, came up in the chat box as we played that. We are looking to do a part two where they're looking in much more detail. Um, but this is the power of social media, and this is why the state wants to close down uh, social media, because this is just TikTok uh, statistics showing uh, the views on the subject of CAFCAS alone. Uh, I can't go into detail now, but just to say that this is why the governments around the world are so frightened of social media. Um, let's move on. We also just want to give recognition to the fact that the BBC's had to apologise um, to Andrew Bridgen for uh, captioning his speech in the House. So bottom right of your screen is the BBC's apology. There was a lack of consistency, apparently, uh, but we understand there may be a legal action now uh, against the BBC for their disgusting uh, censorship and manipulation 
of his speech in the House. Um, I'd also like to just pop this one on, cancer, cancel culture. Uh, there was going to be a conference about this uh, control within uh, um, the world, global control, the rules-based international order and components of that, the Great Resist Conference. It was going to be in the Holiday in Lime Street, Liverpool, Saturday, the 11th of November. But, uh, oh dear, um, this hotel decided that... Uh, it had to be cancelled. So a lady called Liz Phillips pushed around an email saying that she'd been contacted by the hotel. Um, they claimed that they'd received a communication. They wouldn't talk about the nature of it or the sender, uh, but they pulled the plug on the event and said they were going to give their money back. Um, so this is the email from Matt uh, from the Holiday Inn. They apparently take a non-political view, uh, but they don't like anybody expressing any view at the hotel. Uh, on matters to do with what's happening in the world. So if you feel you should consider whether you should stay in one of those hotels to be censored, uh, perhaps you should think about that. Sharp-eyed viewer pointed out that the Department of Work and Pensions uh, was looking at powers of arrest, seizure and collecting information on where cl claimants spend money. So more state control coming in through the social side of, uh, of uh, UK. Now, moving on to how things are controlled in the world, um, this is a little video clip, uh, Fox News interviewing former CIA director James Woolsey. I'm afraid I don't have a date for this interview, but it stands alone as it is. Let's have a listen. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system in order to avoid the communists from taking yeah. over. For example, in Europe, uh, uh, in 47, 48, 49, uh, the Greeks and the Italians, we... We don't do CIA. that now, though. We don't mess around other people's well, elections, yeah? Well, mm, <laughs> only for a very good Can cause. Can you do that? Do a Vine video on a former CIA director. Only for a very good cause in okay. the interests of democracy. All right, thanks for being here. It's good always great to see you. Well, that is a demonstration of the intelligence or not and moral code of people. That I, I, uh, didn't, I noticed she didn't ask, do we interfere in our own elections? <laughs> well, of course, my point made. Just pop this one up on screen. Networks of Empire. Uh, this was recommended by Alex Thompson back in February 2016, looking at the US State Department's foreign leader program in the Netherlands, France and Britain. And of course, those leaders help skew national politics to be aligned with uh, whatever the demands are of safety and security and economic development, the Americans. Now, back at home, we've been talking about uh, the government's uh, attempts to control media by uh, global conferences on media freedom. This is back to 2019. We've been looking at a lady called Amal Clooney. We're not suggesting in any way she's done anything wrong. We're just interested in what's been ha happening. Foreign Secretary at the time, Jeremy Hunt, he explained why we must stand with those who seek to report the truth and bring the facts to light. Isn't that an amazing statement by that man, Mike? Uh, well, if we go on and have a little look, um, Oh, I'll put the postscript in because, of course, the only truth that Mr. Hunt's interested in is the truth that's already been uh, deemed uh, to be the truth by the British government or what overseas friends claim to be.
So here's the lady herself. Just to take you in a bit more detail of what she said in her um, address to the group. In discussions with the foreign uh, secretary, he made it clear that he wanted to establish a powerful new initiative that could create meaningful and lasting change, an initiative that could continue to operate regardless of which individual or political party was in power. Mm. That, to me, rather suggests that the power of this organization is going to be above nation states, which I find very concerning. But maybe she didn't mean that. He explained that the initiative would uh, include the establishment of an independent and international panel of lawyers. There's a big assumption that those lawyers um, are squeaky clean enough to be advising the rest of us as to how we should control media. But they're going to better protect uh, the press and a media freedom fund will be set up to help journalists access legal advice and training, all independent, uh, hopefully. In these discussions with the UK and Canada governments, Canadian governments, I set out my vision for the legal panel based on the issues that I think are priorities for reform. Well, I beg Miss uh, Clooney's uh, I don't quite know how to put this, but I'd like to know more about her and what her views and values are before I'm happy to accept what she's going to put forward for this panel. Um, but uh, of course, she's the one who's been selected. Uh, what, she's, what is she talking about? The institution and consistent use of sanctions regimes to impose serious financial consequences on state officials who abuse media freedom. Those uh, sanctions, of course, will not be applied to pe uh, people in government in the UK or within Western powers, I suggest. Uh, she's talking about enhanced consular duties when a journalist is detained abroad, a system of visas for persecuted journalists uh, seeking asylum. And if we just finish this little section off, an international investigative team, including lawyers and forensic experts, that could be deployed when a journalist attacked. No mention of whether that's going to be independent or how that will be guaranteed. The promulgation of model legislation to guide states on the free speech guarantees that must be respected under international law. So UK is going to tell other people around the world how they are going to protect uh, free speech. And then if we look at a little bit more detail in what uh, was actually said, I'll just take you to the bottom because we're a little bit short of time. Lawyers who are at the forefront of advocacy to promote media freedom around the world, including in Russia, India, Pakistan, Uganda, South Africa, and the Middle East. So we can see that this is not independent and unbiased. This is absolutely to put a Western uh, view of media freedom into countries that presently don't adhere to our rules and regulations. Um, so there we are. Although 173 states have ratified the United Nations Treaty, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights that guarantees freedom of speech, many countries still have laws that allow the muzzling of journalists. Well, if that sounds, <laughs> if that sounds um, familiar to people, it must be because she's describing the UK in 2023. So I'm just appalled at the, uh, the uh, hypocrisy here. But uh, take you back to a UK column report uh, on, uh, sorry, December 2013. And uh, here we've got a diagram showing the power of big institutions, Schumann, Ford, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Soros and MacArthur. And of course, MacArthur, Ben has just described the power of that in manipulating media around the world. 
I wonder whether the Clooney Foundation will be investigating the power of these organisations, and I rather suggest not. So just to um, rub some salt into the wound, really, for the government, uh, this was a UK column report 2016, uh, when uh, Lord Richards, uh, General and former Chief of the Defence Staff, um, put out an email stating that he's just had to tell Number 10 to take my name off a letter they're drafting from a number of retired, very senior officers supporting the Remain cause. This is before we've even seen the deal. And of course, what he's highlighting is the British government manipulating people's reputations in order for them to promote a political agenda. That isn't free speech. This is the UK column, February 2016, and we're showing part of a document uh, which was the EU uh, running propaganda campaigns in the uh, country at the time of the common market. Uh, it says here the programme for such speakers should concentrate on constituencies represented by MPs who were doubtful about entry and a campaign of letter writing to MPs by constituents must also be promoted. Uh, the significance of this is the British government and the European Union were paying for this so-called um, um, grassroots uh, response. So this is propaganda and manipulation of free speech. Um, we've got Cameron here, um, uh, Ministry of Defence, um, paying £120,000 a day to boost its public image uh, while cutting mob defence spending on defending the nation. So this is UK propaganda. And it brings me back to Mindspace, which Ben has already covered. But let's put some meat on the bones because Mindspace was just one component of a web of government, government officials that were working to change society to a new model. Uh, and that model of big society was based on the works of uh, Saul Alinsky. Um, so there you have more detail. UK column has shown a lot. And I'll just say Francis Maud in the middle, also the man that locked uh, UK into working with Israeli 8200 intelligence unit. And I think it, uh, uh, well, I'll just pop this one up as well. So, of course, the use of applied psychology was to be made a business. So a link through because, of course, Francis Maud heavily involved with bringing the power of Israeli intelligence into the British government, security services, intelligence services, and interacting with the lives of ordinary citizens in the UK. That's a good opportunity, I think, to pass back to Vanessa. No, it's to me. Oh, so, it's to you. So I beg your pardon, all, We've got this because Spiked was uh, tweeting this out uh, a couple of days ago. No, Israel is not a settler colonial state. Uh, those painting Israel as a colonial power are rewriting history. Uh, this is all a blatant attempt to strip Jews of their humanity, writes James Hartfield. Of course, it's not a blatant attempt to strip Jews of their humanity at all. But the question is, is Israel... Uh, effectively a colonial power or a, a pawn of a colonial power, perhaps. Uh, let's listen to RFK Jr. And Israel is critical. And the reason it's critical is because it's a bulwark for us in the Mideast. It's almost like having an aircraft carrier in the Mideast. It's our oldest ally. It's been our ally for 75 years. Um, it has been an incredible ally for us in terms of the technology, the exchange. And, you know, in building the Iron Dome, which we paid a lot for, has also taught us enormously about how to defend ourselves, 
cut off from Israel. So those military expenditures um, are are you know are are all going. Seventy five percent of it goes to U.S. companies under the agreement under the MOU. But if you look at what's happening in the Middle East now, Iran is now um, a the closest allies of Iran are Russia and China. Iran also controls all of Venezuela's oil. Hezbollah is in Venezuela. They have propped up the Maduro regime, and so they control that oil supply. Um, BRICS, Saudi Arabia is now uh, joining BRICS. So those countries will control 90% of the oil in, our, in the world. If Israel disappears, the vacuum in the Mideast, which is, you know, Israel is our ambassador, it's our presence, our beachhead in the Mideast, and it gives us, um, it gives us ears and eyes in the Mideast, it gives us intelligence, it gives us the capacity to, um, uh, to, to, to influence affairs in the Mideast. If Israel disappeared, Russia and China would be controlling the Mideast, and they control 90% of the world's oil supply, and that would be cataclysmic for U.S. national security, so that's the I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Well, just it's absolutely clear, and I personally believe what he's saying is correct. Uh, he's called it a beachhead. He's called it an aircraft carrier. He's certainly not describing it as a country. It's a tool to uh, enable and protect the power of the U.S., uh, a country terrified that it will lose access to the world's oil. Uh, yes, yeah, so it sounds a bit like, well, at the very least, neo-colonialism, uh, Vanessa. But uh, what have you got on on the uh, the war itself? Sorry. Well, I just wanted to, uh, sorry, to um, recall Julian Assange's words, which is that war is almost always, or always, created by lies. So what I wanted to look at today is at least kind of continuing to decipher some of the headlines that are effectively enabling um, the ethnic cleansing and uh, genocide of Palestinians, as admitted uh, by members of the Israeli government, uh, the heritage minister calling for the new king of Palestinians in Gaza, and the various documents that have been released um, showing their plans to ethnically cleanse all of uh, Palestine of Palestinians and to convert it into an Israeli-only state. So first of all, number one, let's have a look at the, uh, the the trope that kind of carries through every single time that Israel carries out an aggression, whether it's against Palestinians or against Syria or against Iraq or against uh, any country in the region, Israel's uh, right to self-defense. So let's have a look at what this really means. If we look at the first slide, which is uh, an article from uh, Sam Hosseini, I recommend everybody following his substack. He's recently been pressuring the US State Department over what is happening in Palestine and the crimes being carried out by Israel against Palestinians. Um, so he asks, is Israel really targeting Hamas? Does the US recognize the Fourth Geneva Convention? questioning the State Department. So let's have a look at what he's referring to. He sent an email to Richard Falk, a very well-known professor emeritus in the US on international law, now a retired but chairman of uh, Euromed Monitor, one of the foremost humanitarian or human rights uh, agencies uh, in Europe. 
Um, and he basically replied to Sam Hosseini on the question of self-defense, a very similar reply actually to the one that Vasily Nabantsia, the Russian representative in the UN, uh, or the statement he gave in the UN that we mentioned last week. So Richard Bolt basically said, Gaza remains from the perspective of international law and the UN and occupied Palestine territory, subject to the Fourth Geneva Convention. This means that Israel is an occupying power and has a primary obligation to safeguard the safety of the civilian population. As such, it has no international legal right of self-defense. Even if it had such a right of self-defense, it wouldn't have any legal or moral basis for engaging in a genocidal assault, the character of which has been strongly confirmed by Israel's top leaders. So that's number one. So then let's move on to the second one, which is uh, Hamas atrocities. Many of those have been debunked. We've mentioned it uh, various times on UK Column. But I want today to look particularly at this report in uh, Hebrew media at Ynet. So it's been translated from Hebrew. It doesn't read particularly well. But what I want to point out is that uh, these helicopter pilots on the day, so on the 7th of October, were carrying out attacks against basically unidentified targets over a period of four hours and hit about 300 targets. So bear that in mind. Then moving on, let's see what they say. They, so they say basically they realized that there was tremendous difficulty in distinguishing within the posts and localities occupied by a terrorist and a soldier or civilian. So in other words, they had great difficulty in identifying whether the targets were the resistance factions or were actually civilians that were at the rave. 28 combat helicopters fired all ammunition in their arsenal throughout the day of combat in rearmament rounds. Um, the Hamas army, it turns out, deliberately, uh, I'm not sure what that means, but basically what they say is that Hamas had instructions not to run not to uh, reveal themselves in the crowd. So effectively, what that says to me is that these helicopter pilots had absolutely no idea what they were hitting, but they continued hitting for four hours with pretty heavy uh, duty weapons. This was a video actually included in the Hebrew article. And then I've added to it footage that was released by the IOF uh, and was um, put out on social media by RT. So the two together. The first shows the targeting um, of targets. I, I don't know how they could have identified who they were. And then it shows uh, the aftermath. If you can roll that, please, Mike. <laughs>
Now, I would argue that the extent of that damage and the incinerated bodies that I didn't show the video of would, would suggest that that was carried out by the Apache helicopters, not by the, the uh, resistance that was basically armed with um, relatively light weapons. Um, and then moving on to uh, the third um, narrative that underpins the justification for Israeli war crimes or effectively for genocide in West Bank and in Gaza. Um, the Hamas human shield, the claim that Hamas is using civilians in Gaza as human shields. Again, it's an article uh, that I've written up at my Substack. It is packed full of um, resources and reports. So I recommend people go and have a look. Um, basically, the conclusion is that there is no legal evidence that Hamas has ever used human shields. That comes from the likes of Jeremy Bowen at the BBC, who was in Gaza during the 2014 uh, Israeli aggression against Gaza, from the Belfast Telegraph, from Amnesty International, from Human Rights Watch, from various uh, legal, local human rights groups. However, um, Israel has used children in particular, but Palestinian civilians as human shields since 1967 is voluminous. And I have included almost every single link that I found from legal groups, human rights groups, even Israeli human rights groups. And actually, interestingly, this practice began under the British mandate between uh, 1922 to 1947 in the 30s in particular the British military to put down uh, the Palestinian uprising against the influx of uh, European Jews that were dispossessing them of their territory at the behest of uh, the British colonial project at the time, um, were using Palestinians as human shields. And that practice was then picked up uh, by the Zionist forces. So this is just one example. This was from May 2023. Israeli forces use five Palestinian children as human shields. So let's have a look at what they generally do. I have to say also in all the reports, the children that are used as human shields are also abused, tortured. Um, in some ways, sexually, they are humiliated uh, and they are kept prisoner for, for extended periods of time. So this was in, on May the 18th, 2023, or the report was written, Israeli forces surrounded the Shalom family home and used four Palestinian children as human shields. This was on March the 1st. Um, Israeli soldiers ordered everyone out of the house and demanded that their father, Maher Shalom, surrender himself. While Maher stayed inside, the others complied and went outside. Israeli forces then threatened his sons, Nidal 9, Karam 11, in addition to his twin nephews, Ahmed and Mohammed, both two years old, and forced them to stand in front of Israeli military vehicles while Israeli forces fired tear gas canisters, stun grenades, and live ammunition at Palestinians confronting the group of soldiers. As I said, please do go to that article because you will find multiple um, documentation uh, of the crimes of using human shields by the Israelis and none of Hamas doing so. Um, the, the final one that I wanted to again uh, deal with is the fact that people are claiming Hamas is a terrorist group. As I've explained before, there are 17 resistance factions inside Gaza alone. 
Hamas political wing is largely separate to the resistance forces to the Qassam military brigade. I won't go into massive detail now because we're on limited time, but I recommend everybody watches this interview by Kirok Almasian um, with Zach Foster, who's an American academic who has devoted quite a lot of his research to the history and the creation of Hamas, the fact that Hamas put through, I think, uh, 10 peace deal proposals in the early days of their establishment, which were not even considered um, by their Israeli counterparts. Um, but he goes into huge detail, and I think he gives a very valid explanation of who Hamas is, where their roots uh, came from, um, and why the armed resistance is reacting as it is now and in the past. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for that. Um, we will move on now, uh, Ben, to Anthropy. You mentioned this uh, before, uh, so just remind everybody what this is. Anthropy describes itself as Davos on sea, I think, or Davos by the coast. Essentially, it's a place for um, UK globalist types from uh charities from uh the fr from from the markets from industry from the consulting firms um and uh, a bunch of politicians to come together and talk about how they implement um ideas put forth by the world economic forum and others essentially um as you said it took place last week um, and in the aftermath, there have been a whole load of public statements coming out about how fantastic it was and what a great time everyone had. I'm just going to draw your attention to a couple that, 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 that caught my eye. Uh, the first one was from this organization, uh, which you may be familiar with, which is called B Corp. And uh, we were talking about Democracy Next earlier, and their focus is on transforming the political system. Well, B Corp is, is focused on transforming the economic system. And this is a way of pushing the ideas of the World Economic Forum and particularly um, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, out into the mid-market. So they're looking at SMEs, they're looking at um, small independent businesses. Uh, they've already got 1,500 signed up in the UK. Um, their focus is on an inclusive, equitable and regenerative economic system for all people and the planet all sounds lovely doesn't it uh, they have a uh, an evolved version actually of dei uh, they call it jedi justice equity diversity and inclusion isn't that cool uh, that might be a bit of a, an nlp play for the star wars generation I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's actually what they've done there uh, they've got a very thorough and well thought through and detailed plan for how they're going to execute what they're trying to execute. Um, they want to transform the economic system. They've got to get a whole bunch of people involved with it. I won't go into all the detail. It's quite a complicated uh, process chart that they've got here, but it is extremely thorough and it shows you all of the different stakeholders and audiences that they're targeting when they're doing the work that they're doing. I suggest going to the uh, B Corp uh, website, which is bcorporation.uk, and you can go to their strategy page and you can have a look at that chart yourself, but that will give you some insight into how these organizations operate. Uh, the second um, interesting development from Anthropy is um, this gentleman uh, called Kamal Ahmed. 
Now, he's a former BBC and Guardian editor. He's been in the media industry for a very long time. He's seen here on the left-hand side of the chart with Alex Mann, who's the current CEO of Channel 4, the UK public broadcaster. Um, he was a big face of Anthropy. He's headed up a lot of their external communications. He's been doing many of the more high-profile interviews at the events, sitting on stages, moderating panels. Um, and he's also the founder of something called The News Movement, which is a new media organization focused primarily on Gen Z and pushing uh, uh, trustworthy stories and information out across TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, I'm sure Barack Obama is very happy about this and what he's doing. Um, this organization uh, was co-founded with Will Lewis, who is a real big hitter in global media. Private Eye used to call him Thirsty Will Lewis. I don't know why, but I thought that would be an interesting thing to throw in. Uh, former Telegraph, Dow Jones, still currently the vice chair of Associated Press, one of the big newswires, about one of two big global newswires alongside Reuters. And uh, Mr. Lewis has actually this week, well, I think this is newsworthy, he's just been made publisher and global CEO of the Washington Post, the Bezos-owned news organization, um, which, and he's still, as I understand it, retaining his position at the Associated Press and at the news movement, which means that Mr. Lewis has got an extraordinarily influential position in the global media ecosystem. And all of those organizations, in fact, sorry, the, the Associated Press and Washington Post are members of the BBC Trusted News Initiative, which is the self-appointed arbiter of truth on the global stage popped up in the back end of 2021, I believe it was, to combat disinformation around the pandemic, um, all of which might answer the question that was posed to Rory Stewart at the start of the session, uh, the section on democracy, which is who do we go to for truth? Well, it's apparently these people, Trusted News Initiative, Will Lewis, Kamal Ahmed, and all of the people hanging around Anthropy at Davos by Sea. So much more to come from Anthropy. That's a really, really interesting event uh, and a real focal point for a lot of what's going on uh, in the UK at the moment. Uh, just a few quick no, stories. Well, we'll, no, we'll, just, we'll, we'll just have to leave it there. For, for, we'll, we'll cover the, the last three in extra, if that's okay, uh, Ben. We'll, okay. We, need, we need to leave that there. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, we're going to say thank you very much to the UK column audience. My goodness, tremendous and very, very emotional events in the world. We are doing our very best to uh, dig into what is happening. Yes, we're putting across very much alternative views in some places, but at the end of the day, what do we want to see in the world? We want to see the violence to stop wherever it is. We want to see the children protected, and we're not interested in whatever religion or country label is on those children in the first place. So we just like our audience to be very, very sure that our interest is in stopping the fighting, whether it's in Ukraine or the Middle East or other sections of the Middle East. This is key. What is causing this problem in the world? Well, it's very, very obvious now that it is not national governments. We are now in the realms of the rule, rules-based international order controlling events on a very big scale and of course control of free speech and the media is a key part of that we are going to continue to pick away at this um, so that people are aware of what is causing the trouble trouble in their countries and the world and we're not going to be put off if some of those 
um, topics are a little bit challenging or controversial for individuals. I'm going to leave it there. As I say, thank you for joining us. And uh, just think about those lovely poppies uh, waving in the breeze happen to be my garden. Uh, but those flowers, truly wonderful. And let's remember all the people, uh, men, women and children that have died in wars around the world, which they never created in the first place. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.